Well, we are picking up again in uh, the book of Isaiah, and uh, tell you what, I think we're going to have a full year. There is, uh, there's a lot here, and uh, I feel stretched as I think about uh, just kind of coming to this book again and again, week after week after week, and asking God, man, do a work in me. There's work that needs to be done, and I want to be open to that. Uh, today's passage, the, the best way I could think about it was a divine warning. And I don't know if you've gotten any of those uh, in your lifetime. I remember when I was in college um, and I was considering joining a fraternity. And nothing good or bad about fraternities, but they are what they are. And I remember going to uh, a guy who was a real mentor of mine and just saying, hey, I want to get some godly counsel here. What do you think about the possibility of me doing this? And I remember him sitting me down and looking me in the eyes and he said, you know, you can join it or not join it. But here's one thing you better make sure. When you go in, you better have your flag raised high. They better know who you are and what you're about. Otherwise, you're going to look a whole lot more like them instead of them maybe having a chance to look a a lot more like you. Man, I took that to heart. That was, that was great counsel going into that. I remember when Kimberly and I uh, were getting married and kind of in our engagement. And uh, I remember being told in a number of ways, a marriage never, ever drifts into intimacy and oneness. It's always the fruit of great intentionality. Dependence upon God. Great advice and a great warning. Don't be careless with that relationship. With our kids, as parents, when we start having kids, man, we're asking everybody, what do we do? Like, this is foreign territory. And I, I remember this great phrase that uh, Josh McDowell uh, first heard him say it. He said, Rules without relationship breed rebellion. And man, that stuck with me. That was great advice, but a great warning. You got to build relationships with your kids. You don't just give them a bunch of rules and keep them in line all the time. As we come to this passage today, it is a great divine warning to the people of God. And I hope that you'll receive it that way. It's really kind of like what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 10. Because sometimes I come to this text and it's, I'm, I'm like, well, I don't know what to do with it. Like, how am I supposed to? This was a long, long time ago. A whole different group of people. A whole different set of circumstances. What do I do? Here's what Paul told the, the church in Corinth. And he was actually telling them how to think about the Exodus and Israel's failure after the Exodus. Here's what he said. These things, speaking of what we know about Israel, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So we can learn from their failure. You know, as a dad, unfortunately, I felt like a lot of my lessons for my kids was just that. Don't do what I did, please. It'll work out a lot better for you, I promise. So that's, what he's, that, that's where we're going this morning. Um, let's learn from the nation of Israel as the people of God. 
Now, here's the lesson. I'm going to give it to you right off the bat. Psalm 118, 8 and 9 is a great summary for the message of what we're going to see in uh, the experience of Israel. And I want you to say it with me, all right, so that we can all kind of get our heads and our hearts engaged. Verse 8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. That will take you and me a long ways in our walk with God. Just something that simple. Hey, ju- just jot down to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. What we're going to see today is a crooked path. A path that is going after the things of this world instead of a path that is defined by a trust in the way of the Lord. The problem is uh, introduced to us in uh, chapter 3, verse 8. And I'm going to be jumping around a little bit today. We're not just going to go straight through the passage. We're going to kind of hop around, but just follow with me. I hope that you will uh, see the flow here. But we get the problem in chapter 3 of Isaiah, verse 8. And the problem is misplaced trust. See if you can kind of find it in these uh, words. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. So they're going their own way. Everything about what they're doing is in opposition to the Lord. Verse 9, For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. Apparently there was a remnant within Israel that were trying to trust in the Lord. And he says, it'll be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Verse 11, woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Verse 12, my people. Infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you, speaking to the elders and princes, who have devoured the vineyard. The the spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Now, think with me. For Israel, do you think that God was clear about how he wanted them to live as his covenant people? Can we kind of all agree that that God was very clear? No mystery there. He didn't just say, hey, I love you guys and give it your best shot. He was very explicit especially in the first five books of the Old Testament. He laid it out. 
He showed them how life was to be lived, and then he assured them that that way was the only way to flourish in a broken and sin-wrecked world. So they get the plan ahead of time. It's like the cheat sheet for the test of life. He says, if you want life, here's how you get it. And what did they do? He describes it here. Instead of trusting that God knew what was best and just kind of following his pattern of life, they followed the way of the world and they did it in every way, in word and in deed. They paraded their sin defiantly before God, not unlike all of the Gentile nations who didn't know God. So the people of God look like every other nation on earth in terms of what people saw in them. They acted as if their willful disobedience had no consequence. Have you been there before where you just sort of excuse yourself like, hey, God doesn't really care? Apparently, he does. And then he talks to the leaders. They had abdicated their responsibility and actually sought to leverage their position of power for their own advantage. Have you ever seen that happen in the world? It's happening in the nation of Israel. And it's not just, it's not just power for power's sake. They're going after the defenseless, the weak, the needy, the poor. What could be more contrary to the heart of God than leveraging power to rob from the poor? So the Lord says, woe to them. And that's not good. That's a warning. He says they're going to reap what they sow. Here's a big idea, not only from the problem, but as we think about this whole segment, here's, here's a truth that we can live by. When God's people emulate the world instead of trusting in the Lord, okay? So you can trust in him or you can follow the ways of the world. If you follow the ways of the world, you get what the world gets, a lifeless existence. It, it can't be any, it, there can't be a greater contrast if you go after the Lord, you get life, genuine spiritual life. It doesn't mean life is easy. It doesn't mean there aren't tough days and suffering and hardship, but you get him and all that he brings in relationship. If you go the way of the world, it is a dead end right into absolute loss. That's what the world gets, and that's what we get experientially. Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. That's not, that's not the heart here. I'm saying if you and I live like the world, we get lifelessness in our experience. You may have some good days, some fun memories, some sweet, sugary, whatever, but at the end of your days, if you go after the way of the world you're going to get what they get, lifelessness. So here's what that looked like for Judah. We're going to get a description. We're going to talk about guys and gals, and we're going to start with the guys. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, a leadership vacuum. This is where the Lord goes to discipline his people. Look in verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms, as if you were going to leave anything out. <laughs> Very clear. All male leadership is going to be obliterated. And he continues, I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another. Now, there's a progression here. Notice that. You have an absence of leadership. You have people move into that vacuum who are not equipped to lead. What happens? People begin to impress, oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent or disrespectful to the elder and the despised to the honorable. Notice the incredible conflict and hostility that begins to take place when there is an absence of leadership. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak? That's the qualification for leadership in this passage. You have a coat? Why don't you lead us? You shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. That's appetizing. In that day he will speak out, the guy who has the cloak, or supposedly has a cloak, I will not be a healer. In my house, there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. Notice that the Lord is taking away. So what is it that he's taking away? It's leadership. There's a leadership vacuum here. But, but sort of the layer beneath that is, he is taking away an object of trust that these people had begun to give more significance to than they should have. So they're trusting in humanity instead of trusting in God. And so he takes that leadership out in hopes that they might find their way back to trusting him instead of those people. Supply and support, it's not just the men who are in leadership, but it's really everything about that kind of provision that God was making for his people. They are being left destitute. Essentially, they get a chance to come to the end of themselves so that they might turn back to God. Now, throughout Israel's history, men were charged by God with providing righteous servant Leadership. It was never meant to be a power play. They were always meant to serve in their positions of leadership for the spiritual well-being and general welfare of the nation. So they have their responsibilities for the good of the people. But, but here, no one wants that responsibility. They're just literally all taking care of themselves. Now imagine what that does to a community where everybody is looking out only for themselves. It's absolute chaos. Incredible conflict. So it's into that vacuum 
God puts capricious, self-serving tyrants in leadership and cultural divisiveness ensues. This happens very naturally in the world. It's funny. It seems to be happening right here in the good old United States of America. How about that? Now, we've already said we, 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 we want to be very careful that we don't associate the U.S. with Israel. They are not one and the same. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, they are uniquely the people of God. So we are a Gentile nation, but here's what you see. Look throughout history. Those nations which are more or less aligned with the template of God... They seem to flourish. And those nations that don't, we see exactly what's described here. And you know, it's funny. When this nation began, we weren't a perfect nation. We weren't a righteous nation and all that. We're, we're just a nation. But you know what? There was this phrase that was used. And everybody seemed to kind of rally around that phrase. You know what that might have been? In God... We trust. Isn't that interesting? In God, we trust. And I'm just not sure that's true anymore. As a nation. And I'm afraid that the church has placed more of its trust in the nation that's not trusting God. That's a dangerous place for us to be. Here's what we see when we look around us. Relativism, entitlement, pragmatism, lawlessness, self-absorption, self-promotion, self-indulgence. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And we should never, ever be surprised to see that happening when a people aren't first and foremost seeking to walk in the way of the Lord. No surprise. It's exactly what happens. So the lesson, the lesson of this passage, the lesson of this leadership vacuum, we said it a minute ago in Psalm 118. It is better to take refuge in who? The Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord not in princes, not in leaders, not in presidents, but in the Lord himself. Well, let's move on to the gals. God turns his attention to the women of Judah, and here we see deprivation and humiliation. And it's hard to read, but we're going to read it anyway because it's God's word. Chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away, there it is again, remember he took away, from the men in leadership. Now he's going to take away the finery of the 
the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Can I just say, it must have taken them days to get dressed <laughs> wherever they were going. It's like they've got their whole closet with them all of the time. Nevertheless, the Lord has taken it all away. Look what that looks like. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, verse 24. And instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. And that is a sad, sad sight. Ray Ortland Jr. says this to summarize this one little segment here. In loving discipline, God replaces their arrogance, and I might add opulence. He replaces all of that with everything they dread. I sure hope that none of us have to have everything taken away so that we can find our way back to trusting in the Lord. This segment parallels the pride of the men um, so it's not better or worse. Everything the women prized was designed to attract attention to themselves rather than reflecting the image of God and pointing attention back to him as their maker. Self-exaltation and self-sufficiency led the women of Judah to flaunt their wealth as a, t a sign of superiority. So every day is a contest. Every day they're out to prove that they have significance and worth and value, that somehow they're better than someone else because of an exterior appearance. What a tragic way to live, to have to do that day in and day out. When the Lord says, you're beautiful because you were made in my likeness. Because I've given you life, not because you've somehow manufactured it on your own. Their arrogant posture was what led to their profound humiliation. Sin and its due reward frustrated all of life's ambitions and would-be fulfillments. So here we have this, this tragic scene. Remember, this is a warning this is a divine warning. If you want to go the way of the world, this is what you get. In chapter 3, verse um, 6, 
there's a statement there. It says, men will take hold of a man. They'll take hold of their brother. Why? To find a ruler. They're just looking anywhere, everywhere for a ruler, someone who will take responsibility for them. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, now the women are taking hold of a man to seek a husband, to find security, protection, provision, whatever that husband might give them. And because they are looking to humanity instead of to God, they get neither. And they're just left vulnerable to the pain and hardship of life. What a tragedy. Commentator John Oswalt says this, here is the final end of our desire to avoid dependence. Man, that's convicting. Our, de- our desire to avoid dependence. Here's the end. We will become dependent in the most degrading and disadvantageous ways. So what's the remedy? Positively, trust in the Lord, (laughs) right? Negatively, look back at chapter 2, verse 22. That's actually where this segment begins. That's a transitional verse between last week's passage and this week's. But looky there. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Now, he's not talking about the intrinsic value of people. We're valuable because we're made in the image of God. What, what, what he's talking about is they have absolutely no value as objects of faith. They can't deliver what you want them to. They will fail you every time. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about the humiliation of trusting in idols because you come up empty-handed every time. People, human, broken, mortal, finite people are the worst possible objects of faith you'll ever find for ultimate things, for genuine spiritual life. Why would you trust in someone whose heart could literally stop beating any minute? I mean, what are you going to do when that happens? That same commentator, John Oswalt, says this, Idolatry was a sin addressed by God with the people of Israel, but this passage reveals that idolatry is the result, not the cause, of Israel's central problem. It is the exaltation of man that results in idolatry. The tendency of human beings to make ourselves the center of all things and to explain all things in terms of ourselves is the problem. There it is. That's the warning. Another commentator, Jay Motyer, says this, the gift of breath implies a giver and points to the wisdom of trusting rather the one who is the source of life than those who have received life from the source. So let's end with some great news, all right? Here's what the source of life promises. It's really a divine alternative. You can go the way of the world, and you can get what they got, 
or you can go the way of the Lord. And here's what awaits you when you walk that path. And it is a hard path. It's a, it's a, a, a path that requires faith. But here's what it looks like at the end of that path. Chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, and this is speaking uh, sort of in different eras of history. There were days that are, are alluded to here for Israel in that era. But this also points forward to a day that we haven't yet arrived at. It's coming. So in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. All that mess that we just read about, those people, they're going to be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create. I love this. He's been taking away, taking away, taking away. The Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So where you have all this incredible loss, the Lord intends to provide renewal and refuge for a people who will trust in him and him alone. The reference to the branch of the Lord, I love that. We'll see it um, in Isaiah, and there are references there, but that's a messianic reference. And it still just blows my mind that Isaiah obviously wrote hundreds of years before Christ came, but he's pointing to him and will again as we make our way through this book. But that same title, the branch of the Lord, is referenced in all four gospels, all pointing to the person of Christ and that he is the guy, he is the beautiful one that is going to do this beautiful work of renewal in God's people one day. He's doing it in part now, and one day it will be finished. And Zion, the centerpiece of God's presence, will be available for all who have trusted in him. So let's wrap up this way. Let's think about this. We've we've received this warning. We've got these two paths, the way of the Lord and the way of God. Of the world. And I want to talk a minute just, just for a second about the way of the world and what that really is. Because you know what? I don't know if you're just going to jump off the cliff tomorrow and just blow everything and punt your faith and uh, you know, check out. It's usually far more gradual. It is this residue of the world that begins to just cover layer by layer. And you, and you wake up 5, 10, 20, 40 years later, and you you wonder, how did I get here? It was because you didn't make up your mind which path you were going to walk. 
So let me talk about the way of the world. Others have called it the spirit of the age. Define it this way, it's in your notes. This is the world's peer pressure. It's not just for teenagers. The world's peer pressure, a satanically inspired system of values and ideas that cultivates a lifestyle that is independent of God. That's what you and I are facing every day. And here's what the New Testament author said about that. The Apostle John in 1 John 5.19, he said, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If you have an optimistic view of humanity, you are pulling that out of thin air because it isn't real. This says all of the world is under the rulership, the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, here's how we can relate. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So all of us, we know what it's like to go the way of the world because we did it prior to meeting Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 12, we'll end with this. Now, now after we have been redeemed by grace, through faith, in the substitutionary death of Christ, verified by his resurrection. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Listen, if you are convinced of the the incredible, almost incomprehensible goodness of God toward you, which you didn't do a thing to deserve, then the enticements of the way of the world will fade away because they can't compare. I'm going to give you a minute to think about that. You, you just got a good warning, <laughs> a life-giving Warning. So here's what I want to ask you to do for your so what. In light of all that God has freely given you in his son, consider how you might trust him more fully today. We're, we're always in a state. We're always in, in a process of discovering those ways in which we're really not trusting God very well. So how could you, in light of God's goodness toward you, Trust him more fully today. Take a moment and give that some thought and then we'll continue to worship.